0: Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning. Welcome to New Year's Eve Talk Back Gardening. John Lamb, good morning.
1: Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners. And I'm sure many gardeners already sitting down planning what is going to happen in 2023. Uh, It's uh, a good year ahead of us, I hope. And I'm hoping it's going to be the year that governments and people started to take climate change very, very seriously. And that's our topic for the next half hour. We're going to talk to two of South Australia's top climatologists, Darren Ray, consulting climatologist, regular walkback gardener. And we're also going to talk to Peter Heyman. Dr. Peter Heyman is a principal researcher with PIRSA. And his role is to research and work with the farmers, the viticulturists, the horticulturalists, the agriculturalists in adapting to climate change. And the challenge is what can we learn from those already adapting? And what can we learn as gardeners? And maybe we pose two issues. Are we going to change the plants that we grow to survive uh, in 2050? Or are we going to change the way we grow our plants in 2050? That, of course, is assuming that we get to 2050, the target, and neutral carbon.
0: Mm. Well, that's right. That's a big assumption to make at the moment. Uh, We have got um, a couple of wonderful prizes for you as well. Uh, The ABC Organic Gardener calendars and diaries. I've got two special New Year's prize packs for you. You need to register my 9.15 this morning. We are asking you for your full name and address, obviously, but your favourite drought or heat-tolerant plant. And, John, the list is so long, I don't know where to start, but Banksia, Rosemary, Lavender, Honeysuckle Hedge, Grevillea, Casuarinas, Coryas, buddlias, of course, succulents making a lot of appearances as well. Pig face, one of my favourites. Um, lemon trees and lime trees, kangaroo paws, and, and many others. And they are very important, of course, given climate change. So um, I'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment. But if you'd like to register, the text line is 0467 You've only got until quarter past nine. And then we'll pick the two winners at random. So if you would like to send in your name, full postal address and your favourite drought-tolerant plant and why it is that you love it or heat-tolerant plant. We would love to hear from you on that line. We'll get back to your general talkback questions as well in around half an hour. The phone number for that is 1300 222 if you'd like to ring in and, and get a start there. And later in the program, I will also have our number, I think, three I've got of the very last of the December Gardening Australia <coughs> magazines to give away. But for 2022, John, what was the rainfall like? Was it a particularly dry year?
1: Uh, well, well, we've got to our year. I think we uh, exceeded uh, 527, I think, uh, millimetres here in Adelaide at West Terrace, and we exceeded that by about uh, 60 millimetres. And it was interesting uh, that some years – January, of course, was very, very wet, and there's a few other – November was very, very wet, a couple of dry years in between. And uh, I think uh, from a rainfall point of view, um, it wasn't as wet as many people thought.
0: Mm. Well, certainly uh, the challenges that we have of climate change do lie ahead for us in the new year in 2023, and that's what we're going to talk about now, John.
1: Yes, 2022 is disappearing very, very quickly, and in 2023, maybe it's going to be the year we take climate change very seriously, and what is going to be the effect of climate change on South Australian gardens? The options could be are we going to change the plants we grow or are we going to change the way we manage our plants? There are two concepts, and maybe there are others to consider. And the people who are going to help us consider that is Darren Ray, consulting climatologist, and he's going to take a look at the science of climate change and look at the individual seasons very, very shortly. And Dr Peter Heyman is a principal researcher with PERSA, and his role is to help uh, the agriculturalists, the farmers, the viticulturalists, the fruit and vegetable growers, to adapt to climate change and they are already well down that track and what can we learn as gardeners from uh, Peter Heyman and the people that he works with. So let's get started. Good morning to you Darren Ray. Are you on the line?
2: Yeah, good John. Uh, good Deb. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic to be here doing a tag team with with Peter, who's uh, I greatly respect his, uh, for his work and as a person. So yeah, fantastic to be here.
1: All right. Well, before we uh, go back to you and uh, take a look at the seasons, Darren, let me say good morning to Peter Heyman.
3: Good morning, John. And uh, good, good morning to. Um to Deb and to, um, and to my friend Darren. Yes,
1: tonight. and I have many, many uh, fond memories of wheeling Peter Ray, Peter Heyman around uh, Southern Australia talking to farmers, but that's a story for another day. Let's get serious. Um, we're planning uh, for climate change, and by 2050, that's the target where we need to be carbon neutral. Uh, the thing is, do we change the the plants that we grow, or do we change the way we manage? Darren Ray, would you care to comment?
2: Uh well, it's yeah, it's a bit of both, and I mean, we're really in this situation where, um, so one of the there's a few few key points. So I'll just really set some background here quickly, and um, just, and I guess yeah, you know, this this can this really is. Um, I've been doing, over over the last year, been doing some work with state government, um, pulling together climate change projections, high resolution, downscale climate change projections for South Australia. So, and there's a lot happened over that year, um, but it just, that, you know, that, that sort of role of, uh, so it's, it's serious stuff and it is a bit challenging, uh, you know, communicating what is some pretty, well, we're going to, you know, we'll be talking about some pretty challenging stuff today. and. Um, you know that's something I've been doing for quite a while now just in that space of you know trying to communicate the science of weather and climate to um to stakeholders and and policymakers for for quite a while and I'm I, and so while we come out of Christmas and everyone's been having a great time uh, we are seeing in seeing some really important challenging stuff emer- that continues to emerge and has emerged most particularly over the last um year or so so Um, So so just some quick background, okay, so for those, um, what we're talking about is increasing greenhouse levels and the greenhouse gas levels in the atmosphere. So greenhouse gases stop that heat heat from escaping to space. So a certain level of that's terrific, but we've put a big, huge amounts of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere over the last couple hundred years. um, And that's increased the amount of heat that gets trapped in the climate system and stops more of that heat going to space. So we're getting temperature rises and changes in weather patterns associated with that. Now, um, one of the important things is, um, in terms of background, is there's really significant lags in the response of the climate system. So, there's a major sort of lag over about a 20-30 year time frame, which means that we've had about a degree of climate change already, and there's a certain amount of extra climate change which we're locked in for in the climate system because of the greenhouse gases we've already emitted. So, when we're talking about, you know, you were talking about what's going to happen out to 2050. There's not a huge difference in terms of the scenario what we do uh, going out to 2050 um, in terms of what's going to happen, uh, even if we, you know, um, re- very strongly reduce emissions or whether we keep going the way we're going at the moment, what happens to 2050 is largely locked in. It's really the emissions we do over the next at 2050 matter incredibly importantly in terms of what happens after 2050. So that's that's one key thing. So we can have a fair fairly good with a little bit of a range idea of what um, what we can expect out to twenty fifty. And um, so in terms of what's been happening with climate, there's two reports that came out this year that are really important for people. So one is the Bureau's State of the Climate Report, which they updated they update every two years. And that's on the Bureau's website and that looks at all the trends in rainfall and temperature and so we've we've warmed up by about one point four seven degrees. In Australia, over the last since 1910, um, and we have seen declines in rainfall in southern Australia, um, wetting up in the tropics, and um, increases in bushfire fire risk. Um, so people can see those. And the other important one we'll be talking to is the um, the Guide to climate change projections for South Australia, which I was part of the team pulling together this year, and that got released in November. So um, I was responsible for, running, for pulling a lot of the numbers together that go into that report. And that's a quite a nice um, summary and it's got figures for Adelaide in terms of temperature trends and uh, changes in rainfall and other, other, and heat extremes and that sort of thing as well. So I'd refer people to, to those two resources in terms of understanding what's going on and what we're likely to see over, over the next few decades.
1: Darren, can I come in at that particular stage? Yeah, You're sure. pointing the uh, uh, to to where the source of informations uh, are for people to uh, use as a, a reference. But the aim is to get there by 2050. How much time have we got before it's too late? Yeah, so great question,
2: Peter. Um, so basically, the Paris Agreement, uh, the international, the global Paris Agreement targets. Uh, to reach zero emissions, uh, well, keep below two degrees. Keep below two degrees total warming. We've had just over a degree already, so we've got a bit more locked in. So we're starting to get close to that sort of line in the sand. Um, but it's one of the things, and that's so that requires to kick to get to that. That's basically the zero emissions by 2050, and even some uptake of some of that extra carbon dioxide by things like trees and. That sort of thing to keep to that two degree target. One of the things that came out this year is um, a really disturbing work on climate tipping points. Um uh, a paper, paper by Armstrong McKay and uh, Mar- Armstrong McKay in, in September in Science Magazine, so prestigious science journal, looking at the tipping points in the climate system. It's basically highlighting that we're a lot closer to some nasty tipping points in the climate system. So we go over that line and it really, really starts initiating a whole bunch of processes that make things even worse. So things like cold die-off, Greenland ice sheet melt, um, contributing sea level rise, Antarctic, West Antarctic ice sheet melt, um, changes in the Arctic permafrost melting. And so that paper is really incredibly important. So that's another very, very important thing and very disturbing thing that came out this year as well. So, um, yeah, it basically highlights that we're, everything we can do to keep close closer to 1.5 degrees... Total warming that means we can avoid tipping off, uh, going over, uh, going across a whole bunch of major tipping points that could set off you know 10 metres of sea level rise, irreversibly over centuries. So that's the kind of you know that's what's at stake.
1: Well, could um, I in bring in Peter Heyman uh, uh, at this stage, uh, Darren, and and uh, just. Follow that line. The basically, I think you're suggesting that uh, time is not on our side. Uh, uh, Peter Heyman, as uh, the principal research scientist with Perza, uh, your role is to, to help farmers uh, and, and uh, agriculturalists adapt. But before we take a look at that in more detail, uh, from what Darren is saying, are we in danger of running out of time?
3: Yeah, I think... I think uh I mean, um, every half degree matters, every tonne of greenhouse gas matters, and every year matters. Uh, And uh, I I agree wholeheartedly with Darren's points. And really, I mean, we talk about 2050, this idea that we're going to solve all this sometime in the late 2040s um is a is naive we've all got to work out how do we we work towards that now and uh and uh, yes i think i think that um we need to reduce the greenhouse gases to avoid what we can't adapt to and and it's really just really naive to talk about so so later here i think there's a lot of good evidence that south australian Farmers are really adaptive, and South Australian gardeners are going to be really adaptive. But the notion that we can just cheerfully go into a really frightening future and adapt is, I think, naive. Um, but also, we're going to have to adapt to what we what we haven't changed, what we have, what we haven't been able to avoid. And 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 so, as Darren said, there's a lag, and there's there's something we're locked into there. So we've got to do both. We've got to reduce greenhouse gases and adapt. I mean, a, a friend, Mark Howden, talks about There was a time when in a car you had to either brake or steer, but now with better braking systems, you can do both. We've got to brake and steer. We can't say because we've got good steering, let's just keep accelerating. We've got to brake, but as we do that, we can also steer and and manage, manage systems as well.
1: Peter, I'll come back to you in terms of uh, how uh, the people you're working with are adapting and what we can learn from that. But before we do that, Darren, coming back to you, could we just very briefly just look at the seasons, the four seasons uh, here in South Australia, and take a look at what is happening and what will happen to uh, those four seasons? Just very, very quickly, summer. What will happen in summer?
2: Yeah, so... um uh, summer temperatures. So, if you go to the report, summer temperatures by 2050 go up um, for uh, around about one and a half degrees, maybe a touch more for daytime temperatures, um, and rainfall. Uh, summer rainfall declines by about five percent. Now, that's that's a highly tricky one because of the uh, variability in El Nino and La Nina events. So, we've got some. That's that's really what uh, as Peter would well know would well understand the um, you know, that's there's, there's a lot of complexity around what's going to happen with the influence of El Nino and linear events and you know the amount of extra moisture that's coming into the tropical atmosphere from warmer oceans that sort of thing but from the projections we're seeing basically a slight decline in summer rainfall overall oh, But right, probably so more extreme either way less, various, less rainfall
1: and certainly higher temperatures autumn what's happening in autumn.
2: Uh, so I guess the other thing with with summer is um, is the increased bushfire risk as well. So we're already seeing you know about about a week extra um, nasty fire weather days for that uh, potentially big fires could could get away, and expecting more of that as well. But autumn um, so interesting. So one of the things is the tropics expanding uh, from the warming of the planet um, caused the the confranal systems st- uh, to stay further south, and that's reflected in um, in 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 um, declines in autumn rainfall and later break of the growing season, um, and overall warmer temperatures as well. So not quite as not about more like about 1.2, 1.3 degrees by 2050, Um, and uh, yeah. So later break the season, um, drier, um, cold fronts getting weaker, staying further south, um, and hotter hotter temperatures.
1: Okay, so there's a very clear message coming out of autumn: less rainfall, and that late break I think is of very, very, very significance in terms of temperatures. Uh, winter, winter again, uh, can be a critical time.
2: Mm. So the, they've got um, I'm talking about an eight percent decline in rainfall by twenty fifty for Adelaide, and um, once again temperatures uh, in winter increasing by about one, just a bit over a degree. Um, This is compared to the 1986 or 2005 baseline, so that's uh, yeah, so about another degree over what we uh, what we've been experiencing over the last back in the some 90s and 2000s. Um, And but the in terms of the strongest declines um, and the warming, the biggest biggest time of year is spring. So if we go into spring, you know we're seeing rainfall declines of of 20%. and you know temperature increases that are close to two degrees for maximum temperatures. And so that just that is on top of the trends, strong warming in spring temperatures that we're seeing at the moment. And as Peter, I'm sure Peter will talk about the that impacts crop yields quite significantly, for instance, and and has in, has impacts on flowering times, um, earlier heat wave activity, earlier start to the uh, development of the the bushfire season. So we're already seeing fire seasons starting um you know, about a month earlier than they used to. Plants are flowering, you know, two to three weeks earlier than they used to. So that basically compressing of winter, the winter season, in um gets compressed either end from from April from autumn but more, also particularly spring as well.
1: Okay. Peter Heyman, you would agree with Darren no doubt.
3: Yes, yeah, no, I, and and um you know this is uh I, I think um we can talk about agreeing and disagreeing and so on, but really, this is this is the science of the models, isn't it? And, and this is just a really, really good science in clearing and clarifying what's in the models. And I think the these reports are really, really important. They give the information and the, the very high confidence in, in temperature, and 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 then this, the the less confidence, like you're saying, summer rainfall, but but certainly this um, consistency in the models. For drying in winter and spring is 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 it's not it's not like it's a new finding. It's actually quite a mature science. These findings have been around for a while, and um, and and it's 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 concerning.
1: And because uh, these signs have been around for a while. Farmers, in particular, when I say farmers, I'm talking about the horticulturists and the fruit growers. Everybody, uh, they are already adapting, and very shortly we'll take a look at uh, how they are adapting and what we can learn.
0: Absolutely, our special guests today: are Darren Ray, independent climatologist, and Dr. Peter Heyman, principal research scientist at PIRSA. We're talking about the challenges of climate change and how that relates to us here as home gardeners in South Australia. We'll pick up the issue of adapting to change next. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill.
1: Our climate is changing, and it is essential that we get to carbon neutral by 2050. Time is not on our side. However, principal research scientist with PIRSA. Peter Heyman, is working with industry and they are already down the track and we need to find out what they're doing and what we can learn. So Peter, could you please take that on board and say, what are some of your clients doing and what can we learn?
3: Yeah, so um, I I think there's a a huge amount that gardeners can learn from um, farmers in, in the state. Also, I think it probably goes both ways. I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting adaptations happening in gardens as well. And and, and I guess it's just Im- important, as you would know, you and Darren both know, having worked with these industries, um, business as usual is very adaptive for Australian agriculture and for South Australian agriculture. So they're always adapting. It's not something that they sort of say, oh, well, we've got to do this climate adaptation, tick off that box. Many would even say this isn't about climate adaptation. We're just responding to what's happening and and, and just, just sort of observing what's happening and responding as, as we go, trying to be more water use efficient and so on. In terms of your first sort of really nice question there, John, about are we gonna is it thinking more about what we grow or how we grow it, I think to date the evidence in agriculture is very much more on how we grow it. There hasn't been this wholesale abandonment of what of what's growing. Um, so of course people are looking at new varieties and new opportunities and so on. But but we're still growing the same broadacre crops and we're still the same the main is horticultural crops. Um, and and so just looking at that dry land farming, so there'll be farmers now who are still harvesting and, and been troubled with a wet harvest um and and, and delays and so on. But that moisture, that late moisture, you talked about that wet November and so on. They're going to conserve that moisture. They're going to control weeds over summer. They're going to have have mulch on the ground from from. They're not going. To, they're going to uh, leave the stubble there, which conserves the moisture, and they'll know the moisture is there for next year, and they'll they'll use that in the, in. So they're much better at using rainfall and applying that. But it's not just about the rainfall, they're improving soils, they understand their soils, they're improving that, they have, have rotations. They're just very, very skilled at trying as much as they can. Because we have a low subsidies and so on, they're working with nature and they, they, they have to be doing that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. they're very, very, very good at at, at, uh, at those skills of, you, of, of, of the rain may not fall when you want it, but they'll try and use it when, when the crops need it.
1: Peter, Homan, I you work very closely with some of the viticulturalists. Could you just draw from uh, changes there, how they're adapting to a hotter and drier climate already and maybe uh, how gardeners maybe also can take that on board?
3: Yes. Yeah, so, so I guess just going back, I mean, I think that an interesting um, uh, uh, viticulturalist said to me one point about Australian viticulture is he said the grapevine hasn't read the textbook. So the grapevine hasn't read the textbook that says from France, um, this this variety should be grown exactly here and this on this this area here. To an extent, Australian viticulture, the success story is a group of people who said we're going to give it a go. We're going to try in different spots and we're going to learn from that. We're going to keep trying, and they are they are using new varieties and so on. But they're also making the existing uh, varieties work 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 better and so they're 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 managing that obviously a real challenge for for viticulture are these heat waves these summer heat waves and so on i think you can really clearly see that that they're they're on to that they're listening for the forecast they're getting that information um fr- from the bureau they know a heat wave is coming they're irrigating before that um, they're they're preparing for that they they're uh, um, they're just uh always um sort of trying to be on the front front foot um before before these these events happen try and minimize that and and they're experimenting in many different ways you'll talk about some who are using um sprinklers with 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 big droplets and and some people are using finer finer mists and so on and all sorts of systems and so on to try and and, and manage that, and then they're 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 learning from each other in ways ways to do it. And of course, with that, the soil that just the the um, improving the soil, and again using mulches and so on, how they manage the interrow and so on. There's all all those factors. They know that that gives them resilience for these events.
1: Some fascinating areas of research there, and uh, we don't have time to go down to see the changes in watering and uh, and shading. But I'd come back to one point uh, with Darren Ray, a climatologist. Uh, Darren, um, rainfall is, is particularly important, and it's obviously uh, how we... Uh, use what's available to us is tremendously important and f- a comment on the, the fact that we are going to have uh, uh, probably less rainfall because it's going to be drier but uh, there are implications with that.
2: Yeah it's a yeah, great point you um, to touch on so there's there's quite a strong multiplying factor in terms of water availability so it's about a roughly four times fact- multiplication factor so 10% decline in rainfall you might expect a 40% decline in water ending up in water catchments and dams and creeks and rivers and that sort of thing. So it's a whole bunch of implications for that. It does really highlight the importance of being able to capture uh, rainfall in in rainwater tanks on your own property when it does rain. Um, and so, you know, with a five, five, maybe 10% decline in rainfall, you know, we, we, we can expect, uh, you know, 20, 30, perhaps more um, decrease in water availability to um, the water in catchments. And um, so, yeah, it does, does really throw the onus on being able to uh, capture things in your own rainwater tanks and use your water very efficiently as well.
1: Peter Heyman, let's come back to you. Uh, we're talking about uh, how. Uh, the big farmers are doing it or oh, not the big farmers, the agriculturalists the horticulturalists, but let's bring it back to home gardeners uh, and it, it's it's what we do as individuals that's important everybody's saying, oh yes, the government will do it or somebody else will do it, but it's up to us to be able to do something uh, I know Peter you're a gardener as well as a brilliant researcher uh, from a gardening point of view uh, taking on board some of the information we're discussing uh, well, what are you doing maybe to make a difference
3: okay i mean i'm i'm not I'm not a very good gardener at all i mean so so um and and i've just with my wife and I, i've just moved into a wonderful community in the city where you ha- where i'm very fortunate to be surrounded by some wonderful gardeners who and and a set up where we're using a rooftop garden with with a a community garden so that so that's one thing doing things in community i think is 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 wonderful, and and that might be one of the really important points about how we're going to crack both reducing greenhouse gases and adapting is community. Um, I, I think uh, um, when I, a year ago when we did have a lawn and so on, i um I, I, a few years back, instead of getting a petrol lawn mower, i I, I bought a um, a push mower, which was um I, I tried some cheap push mowers, and they didn't work very well. But then I got a um, onto this uh, very well um, finished Dutch a um, Finnish um, um, uh, uh, push mower which which worked wonderfully. And so I, I think there are there are ways. I mean, there are ways that we can do things. Obviously, a huge a huge factor is just composting. If we put food waste in the red bin, that produces methane um, in in landfill. Putting food waste in compost. And, and composting does so much for the garden. We use that for water and so on. But you're also reducing reducing um, uh, reducing greenhouse gases just by doing that.
1: Some interesting concepts, and uh, I think, as I say, it's up to individuals to do what they can. Uh, coming back to you, Darren, we need to uh, uh, come to a conclusion, I guess. Uh, you are carrying out some interesting research. Is there a particular area of research you'd just like to highlight before we uh, uh, say thank you? Uh,
2: I guess I'd just, just back up on a couple of Peter's points. Um, you know, if we keep on current rates of carbon emissions our budget to stay below one and a half degrees is going to run out before 2030 so just on Peter's point you know um, we need to do everything we can as quickly as we can right now like it's not um, you know it's not uh, waiting until till the 2040s um, and I guess the, the the other thing that came out last year was you know we had we had elections where we saw big shifts in federal and state government into governments that are much more supportive and responsive around climate change which is fantastic so there is some good stuff happening. So on a positive note, there is that going on. Um, the other thing that that came out last year was some work by Saul Griffiths, who's an Australian entrepreneur. He's got a great book called The Big Switch. It's real, very well worth a read. And there is a, it does set a vision out there with um, in terms of jobs and transforming our like our energy system, electrifying everything that uh, has huge savings for the Australian economy. So there is a positive vision there. So. Um, yeah, you know, and uh, there's a there's a great um, it's a great podcast. If people Google Saul Griffith's Big Ideas, it's a great podcast uh, on ABC Big Ideas. Uh, that's very well worth a listen. That sets out the ideas. So there is a positive vision there, um, but we really, really, really need to get stuck in really quickly. And I'm I'm looking forward to people, um, you know, putting uh, putting the uh, pressure on on both federal and state government to um, have some more concrete plans to get there a lot more quickly than we anticipating and we probably need to get to zero by more like 2040 rather than 2050 to keep below that one and a half degrees Darren Ray we have to get stuck his, in really quickly
1: the, Darren Ray's message is we're running out of time fast uh, Peter Heyman there's obviously a lot of information out there uh, how do we make best use of that information yeah
3: I think I think it, we we are the danger is drowning of in information. i think it, I think it is good mm-hmm. to find reliable sources and and there's there's good um there's getting we're getting this getting better at doing getting that from from the bureau and others. And I think it's good to know that the bureau who gives us warning about heat waves and floods and everything else is the same people who are talking to us about El Nino and La Nina. And also, the same people who are talking to us about the, the the climate change and the long-term projections, and 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 how we work across all, all all those different scales from climate science is really, really important. We have to acknowledge the uncertainty in some of that and incorporate that into our into our risk management and our planning. But I think uh, um, I, I would I would think uh, a, an important thing is to be able to talk about it with other people. I mean, it's these as as Darren said at the beginning, these things are pretty are pretty hefty things just go around in our own head. To be able to sort of talk with others and work work together on these things, I think is a really a, a really important part of that.
1: The journalist in me, Peter Heyman, says, uh, OK, uh, you're being funded by governments to look after agriculturalists. And, and, and I say, who looks after the gardener? Who's going to provide the information that they need? But that's a topic for another day. I need to say... To Darren Ray, thank you very much for your contribution this morning and also to Peter Heyman, but I think Deb... I'd, I'd think... like to jump in if you wouldn't mind, John, before we let uh, Darren and Peter
0: go. Just a few things I'd like to put to you. Uh, perhaps, um, uh, Peter, if you could take a couple of questions here. Uh, one texter says, look, so we've gone up one degree since 1850. Is this so bad? Wasn't it warmer in Roman times? And isn't the bigger problem that we've gone from one billion to eight billion people? Peter?
3: Okay, so big, big questions. Um, yes, population is part of is 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 part of the story, and, and that's that's going to that that's a challenge, and that's going to be a challenge for for dealing dealing with this. Um, it's obviously population times impact, um, um, and, and which is which is in terms of wealthy people like me have a be much bigger impact. Um, yes, this early bit of warning warming, it's. I mean, an important part of that is, is what it's done for. I mean, look, look at the 2019 and the bushfires and everything else. Um, there's both benefits and, and costs of this early bit of warming.
0: Okay. If we
3: were to go to three to four degrees, then that is really like add three to four degrees to an Adelaide heat wave and um, you don't need a very sophisticated model to work out that that's, that's not, not going to be
0: good. And Mary asks, what is carbon neutral? We're using that phrase a lot, but what does it actually mean?
3: Can I throw that to Darren?
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Peter. Um, yeah. So d- just on the Rome Warm Period, so I'm doing a PhD on paleoclimate, and yeah, yeah. That uh, that warming was localised to Europe. So, um, you know, it was yeah it was very much focused uh, in Europe rather than being a global global thing. So yes, it was warm in Rome, um, but uh, yeah, not elsewhere. Um, so just on yeah you know, carbon budget. So. Um, Basically, you know, things like trees, um, soil carbon take up carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, And so the idea is we stop putting extra carbon in the atmosphere and then we allow some of our natural systems and possibly even start getting into direct air capture where we use fans and machines to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store that. So to start offsetting some of the difficult um, things that are difficult to, um, to reduce emissions on um so yeah, that's 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 the idea of sort of balance that out. And um you know, so the this is where revegetation in your garden can play an important part as well as the other things like solar panels on your roof and electric vehicles and those sorts of things. Um but enhancing soil carbon, um, growing growing long long living trees, um those things are all, all useful in terms of um, offsetting some of the emissions that are a bit more difficult to stop doing.
0: So does carbon neutral then mean that we are we're sort of keeping a stasis? We're we're not increasing yeah. the amount of carbon that we're putting into the environment.
2: Um, basically, well, Basically, what we want to get to is a position where carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere and methane levels aren't going up anymore. Um, you know, they're going up at two parts per million per year at the moment, and you know, I, I look forward, hopefully, get to a point, um, some stage, very in not too distant future, where they stop going up, those levels stabilise. That's what we're all looking for.
0: Well, look, we we are almost out of time, but there are so many texts I'd like to put to you, I can't. But we're getting several that have got the same flavour, which is really have things changed all that much. For example, Marg says... Um, uh, I'm 70. I remember as a child we had long heat waves lasting 10 days to a fortnight. Now we have one or two days. Um, We're in summer. We're going to have hot days. Everything is dramatised. I've also things like climate change alarmism is damaging our children. And Ken and Mount Barker saying... Climate change is being blamed for the Murray flood, but where was the climate change for the '56 flood? So I guess there's a level of cynicism there that what we're experiencing now is related to climate change. Darren, could I just get a quick reaction to you on that, and then I'll go to Peter.
2: Yeah, well, we've got we've got we've got some good records that show us that events we're happening now are, are are unusual in in, term, in the longer term context. So the heat waves that we're getting now are clearly um, more extreme and longer. I mean, people are, people are a little bit lulled by the, the, the sort of cooler conditions the last three La Nina years. Um, so, you know, people have already perhaps forgotten 2019, which was Australia's hottest year on record, and we had um, record heat across uh, much of the country and extreme droughts, and a third of large areas of the country were going up in flames. I mean, um, so, yeah, you know, there is variability, but the trends are very, very, very clear in terms of what's going on
0: okay, and, and Peter, just final few words to you on on those types of texts. I can only give a representation of them because we just don't have time to put them all to you.
3: Sure, so i think I think it's good to talk about our variable and changing climate. Both things are happening at the same time. We have year to year variability and we have change, and it will be difficult to just sometimes distinguish and know which is which. I guess my simple point here would be that, Let's hope for a world where we can have these arguments. People can say, oh, it's not really climate change, it's just variability and so on. We don't want a world where it's obvious that it's, everything is climate change, because that's what we may head to if we head to high emissions. That makes sense. We will just head to a world where every we're just gonna be the the trend is gonna just massively swamp the year-to-year variability and the decade to decade variability. So of course we have year to year variability, we have decade to decade variability. It's really important and really important with rural people to acknowledge that they have lived through a lot of that variability. They've managed that well. But we have an underlying trend as well. At the moment, it's sort of a bit hidden in some of that variability, a bit hard to see. And you need skilled people like Darren to pick that out statistically. We can all see it. It will be a problem.
0: I think one of the big problems with discussions like this which are very confronting is that many of us can feel paralysed and, and powerless about it. So I appreciate the fact that you've both given us some in individual tools that we can uh, look at. Uh, before I let you go, Dr Peter Heyman, Principal Research Scientist at Persa, I've been asking people all morning for three words that sum up what they hope for in 2023. Do you have one, two or three words you'd like to throw at us?
3: Okay, so I was just giving a a very short warning on this. So I've, I've, like I I said, there's a whole lot of words, I and I never do this right, but I'll say reduce. So we need to reduce our emissions. We need to adapt. So reduce, adapt, and fair. We need to do that in a way that's fair. And, And so there's ways we can do that that are unfair, but let's try and reduce, adapt, and fair.
0: Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate your input today, and I know we'll be talking to you again in 2023. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and Darren Ray, independent climatologist, thank you for everything that you've done for us here on Talk Back Gardening with your seasonal outlooks. You'll be back next week with us for the January um, 2023 seasonal outlook. But what three words sum up what you most hope for in 2023?
2: Uh, I, I really like Peter's words on community and collaboration and and just awareness, um, so, yeah, that's what's going to get us through these challenging times is, is people, you know, responding to the fear stuff that comes up in it, within us with, with that connection, community and collaboration and awareness. So,
0: yeah. Wonderful. We'll look, uh, we look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you very much, Darren. Thanks. Thank you. We will uh, announce, thank you for all of your texts. Great to receive them. And we will announce the winners because we've had a lot of texts registering for our ABC Organic Gardener prize packs, but a fascinating discussion there. Uh, Thank you very much to John Lamb for organising all that. Very interesting indeed. We'll come back to your talk about gardening calls next. Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Let's get back to your Talkback Gardening calls. Joe is in Glenelg East with a rose question. Hi, Joe.
1: Good morning. So, tell us about your rose there, Joe. I'm
3: sorry to be trifling after all the big issues, but uh, we've recently planted some standard roses, probably uh, only about two weeks ago. Um, They're a long stem thing. I'm just wondering, can I prune them now and and how much?
1: Roses are pretty resilient and pretty adaptable, but uh, you don't want to be cutting them back too much at this time of the year. Um, I presume that they had a nice flush of flowers during spring, and do you still have the deadheads, or have you removed them?
3: we've still got the deadheads. We only planted them two weeks ago, and they still had flowers on them, and they've just recently sort of died off.
1: I know, and uh, so they're in growth, though, putting on good growth?
3: Oh, no. Well, a lot of the leaves sort of died off a bit, so they sort of looked like they struggled a little bit.
1: All right. Well, go easy, because bear in mind, uh, every leaf is needed to interact with the sun and help produce uh, the energy that the plant is going to need uh, to continue growing. So, anywhere where it's had a flower, chop off the dead head and maybe one set of leaves, but no more than one set of leaves behind the dead head. And. the important thing then is to uh, stimulate uh, what's going on in the soil. Stimulate the little biotas uh, using any one of the uh, soil materials that are uh, what they call soil biotics. Uh, there's seaweed, but there's lots of organic materials that you can put into the soil, and that gets the root system going, and that's what you want. Plenty of roots, and the roots will then look after the rest of the plant. Um, just be aware that if we do hit uh, Uh, very hot weather, a a period of extended hot weather and Darren Ray will be along next week and uh, hopefully he'll say it's heat spikes, John, not heat waves, but more of that next week. Um, But if we do run into a period of uh, uh, plus 40 degrees for two or three days, putting shade over your plants. And what didn't come out of today's program uh, was the importance of shade and uh, just learning from uh, the tomato growers. The commercial tomato growers use shade on their tomatoes. And uh, I wonder why my colleagues don't come on board with what the commercial people are doing and saying, hey, have some shade cloth standing by, and when it's hot, you can do something about it. You can protect your plants. Okay.
3: Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, they're not looking brilliant. The leaves are sort of quite brown and dry, a lot of them. Uh, We're watering it regularly every morning.
1: Right. uh, Well, it's the direct sun on the leaves that will cause uh, the problems. It'll suck out the moisture very, very quickly and uh, you don't have much of a root system and so the plant will go into stress. On the other hand, if you shade it, the plants are not using so much moisture and that moisture stays in the root system and you can grow a bigger root system faster and by autumn you'll have lovely roses but shading will be very important for anybody that's got new plants uh, that are only just becoming established
3: Right. All right, I'm off to to the local hammer barn to get some uh,
1: shade cloth. Yeah, 50% shade cloth. white. When people go into the garden centres and they buy their tomatoes and their basil um, and buy their fertilisers for the season, you should also make sure that you've got at least two or three metres of shade cloth. And even if you just throw them over the plants, it's better than exposing them to the sun on extreme days.
0: And do you say white shade cloth? John?
1: White shade cloth is tremendously important, 50% shade cloth. Um, the normal shade cloth that protects us is about 70, 80, sometimes 90% uh, shade factor. That's too much. you only get a little bit of sunlight coming through. Plants need sunlight, but some sun protection is essential. And 50% shade cloth, and if it's white, is absolutely ideal because of the reflective way. Black is, is, is oh, we won't go on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that, Joe. Um, I think I better announce our winners because Emma has been busily working away to um, find out who. Our Happy New Year ABC Organic Gardener Prize Packs are going. We've got two beautiful, big, um, lovely calendars to go up on your wall, plus your diary that you can use for whatever you like, but certainly for your garden diary. It will work very well. The winners are, congratulations to you, Linda in Renmark, Chose a pig face plant who loves the colour and uh, it adds to the arid land. Congratulations, Linda. Hope you're doing okay in Renmark with the flood at the moment. And Danny and Diane in Salisbury Park. They're saying lavender, French or English, we love the fragrance. It lines the paths well and it keeps the weeds at bay. So congratulations to you. And if you missed out and you haven't won anything from our station in the last month, I've also got three ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away right now. Call in on 1300 222 891. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Shauna is in Beulah Park. Shauna, you want to transfer your elk horn? Yes,
3: good morning, Deb and John. Um... It's currently on a small um, cork board and it needs to go on a bigger board because it's coming around the back of that now. And I'm wanting to know, do I need to take it off that board or can I just put it onto something that's bigger um, and it will be okay?
1: I would suggest that your second suggestion is by far the best. Um, It's already established to something, and if you want to take that off, you uh, really do disturb uh, its root system. Uh, you wonder where on earth are the roots on a, a, a stag or a, an elk horn but uh, they're little rhizome type things right at the back of the shields and so if you take off the uh, the board it exposes those, it upsets them and uh, it'll take quite some time for it to re-establish. On the other hand uh, if you, you'll notice that uh, you've got your board and it started off as a small elk and it keeps on growing and it's covered the board so <laughs> there's nothing you're going to stop it from continuing you're growing so get be smart work out how you're going to attach uh, um, something which is uh, not going to rot away some hardwood would be ideal or plastic maybe depending on uh, what you want but anyway get some decent kind of uh, um, proper screws that are not going to rust away and attach the old to the new and hang it up and i think you'll find that it shouldn't miss a beat Fantastic, Thank you very much, John, and Happy New Year. Same yeah. to you,
0: Shauna. Thank you. Um, congratulations to our magazine winners, Lynn in Urbray, Wendy in Blakeview and Lorraine in Gawler East. It's a whole woman affair today. <laughs> well done to you. Um, and thank you to the texters. And Doug says, net curtains from op shops is a cheap and easily used for plant shade, you know, if you can't afford the shade cloth.
1: Absolutely. There and are many sheets. things, I, yes.
0: I throw my white sheets, old white sheets over.
1: Yes. The important thing is, you've got to get light to the plants and curtains are probably uh, uh, probably not as good as shade cloth in letting the light through but if you uh, can say right I've got those I'll use them why not
0: exactly our very last talkback caller for 2022 is Mary from Loxton good morning Mary good morning Deb and John John I've got a big problem Every t- every year or almost all the
3: time, because my salvians live all the time, I have these dreadful little tiny white flies on the back of the leaves and they leave like a, I don't know, a film and it's sticky on the back of the leaf. It look, almost looks like uh, downy mildew, but it's not. I think it's just what the horrible little flies leaves.
1: Interesting. And- That's the first call we've had on white flies this season. And obviously in the Riverland, it's a little bit warmer there and they get going during the warm weather. But the fact that you've got an ongoing problem worries me there, Mary. And normally I'd sort of say, look, try and sort of use some of the softer options. But um, I presume that uh, you're not completely organic? No. Well...
3: Yes, I am.
1: I am completely organic. Completely, okay. Well, that rules out the yeah. thing that will... Uh, the the chemical that will solve your problem, very, very effective, is imidacloprid. Imidacloprid is systemic, and it's not toxic uh, uh, except to bees, and uh, I think uh, if you wanted to get rid of them, you could actually uh, put little... Uh, capsules, little uh, balls of, of imidacloprid into the soil, and that would overcome your problem. But because you're organic, let's take a look at the alternatives. Not as effective, but you can get control of it. The important thing is to be aware of the life cycle of your white fly. They're flying around, and the adults don't do much Uh, They leave a bit of a mess behind, but they don't sort of uh, get stuck in sucking the juice out of your salvia. On the other hand, they lay eggs, and the eggs come out as little uh, 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 scale-like materials, and they're on the backs of the leaves. And the important thing is don't let them uh, turn back into white flies. White oil is probably your best, or your summer oils. Uh, uh, It doesn't matter whether it's pest oil or eco-oil, both very effective, but you need to get a very fine mist, and you need to spray it onto the underside of the leaves. Do it on a cool day, and then two weeks later, do it again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think if you put on two sprays with oil, uh, organically, you should be quite okay.
0: Good luck with that, Mary, and good luck in Loxton and to everybody living along the River Murray at the moment. John, it's been a huge year in Talkback Gardening 2022. Um, I know it will be another big year ahead, it always is, but it's always such a pleasure to work with you. And, and, And what are your hopes for the year ahead?
1: Well, I just hope that we are starting to really take on board, as individuals, climate change. It's real And time is running out. We've got to do it now, not later. And if we don't do it now, it will be too late. Mm -hmm. So think about what you can do as an individual, and I certainly will be doing that myself. uh, And I will be spending... My time looking at the scientists like the Darren Rays and uh, also the Peter Haymans, and there are a number of people out there that are working away. The science is sound, it's clear, and okay. There are times when sort of you think, ah, oh, is it climate change or not? It, climate change is not an individual event, it's the fact that we're going to get more. Extreme weather more often, more hot weather more often, more cold weather more often, more disturbed weather more often. That's climate change, and it's the more often that's the concern. And unless we do something now, as Peter and Darren said, it will be too late. When we get to 250 and we haven't got to our target... There's no point in planning. There's no point probably in gardening. We're going to lock ourselves up inside maybe and that could be an extreme. But anyway, that I think is the message for next year and I'll be doing my best in Talkback Gardening to bring people that have got the science and can help you as gardeners. And until next week, I'll say good gardening.